0: Hello, welcome back to the EU New Podcasts with uh, me, Alistair.
1: And Francesco, how are you, I'm Alistair? Very well,
0: thank you. I'm very well. I uh, had some nice cultural experiences this week. I visited a new distillery that's opened up okay. in, in Northern Ireland. And it's really interesting the, the Irish whiskey making process. The last time we talked a little bit about right. Guinness, now I've had a little yeah. bit of the whiskey. It's interesting as well, the, it's all very kind of connected, like the, the wine casks from Bordeaux and stuff that they use to. To, yeah. To give it the flavors, and of course, I brought back a little souvenir.
1: Oh, nice! <laughs> it's a it's, right. it's a lovely, highly peated variety. Yeah. On that note, I went to a brewery. It wasn't new, but <laughs> tried some some local beer here in the Netherlands. It's pretty good. Oh, very <laughs> fun. Which which brewery did you go to? It's just it's actually close by to my place. I could not tell you the name for the life of me, but yeah, I tried this white beer. It was pretty good. Local. It's always nice to try that.
0: <laughs> yeah, we both had our, our cultural experiences for the week. <laughs> it's
1: great. So no Guinness tonight, huh? No Guinness tonight.
0: No Guinness tonight. <laughs> I've switched it up. I was thinking we should uh, we should synchronize our drinks every week.
1: I was actually thinking of having a good old glass of Heineken. A little early in the
0: evening on a Sunday as <laughs> well. A little early. A little early. <laughs> uh, I'm really excited to welcome a, a guest to our show this week. Uh, it's Pietro Valero. He's actually one of the founders of EU&U. He's in Rome at the minute, getting ready to present a paper on the Conference on the Future of Europe. So, uh, really interesting guy. Let's get him on the show. Hey there.
2: Hi there. Welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks. It's nice It's nice to hear from you guys. How are you?
0: Oh, we're very well. We're just discussing our yeah, pretty good. cultural experiences this week.
2: <laughs> How are you, Pedro? Oh, yeah. I'm doing good. I'm actually calling you from... A couple of meters away from the Vatican in Rome. It's,
1: uh, oh, Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy.
2: It's a weird experience to be so close. And in the middle of Rome, it's really nice. I'm happy to be back. Uh, it's been a while. So you're
0: having your cultural imagine. experience too.
2: <laughs> yeah, my cultural experience as well. To- tonight we're going to have dinner at, in the Jewish parts of town. And because people say that real Roman food is the Jewish Roman food, so it's going to be fun as well. Right. So that's another cultural experience there nice. i don't know what what your cultural experience have been this week but yeah
1: <laughs> it was funny because we mentioned before alistair tried some some whiskey fresh out of the distillery <laughs> and i went to a, a local brewery where i tried some white beer here in the netherlands it's pretty good must say <laughs> ah, that's,
0: that's nice there's gonna be some some nice local wine on your agenda for this evening pietro right yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of the best wine that i ever had was from uh, right near Rome. There's a little town called Orvieto. Maybe you've, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, for those of you listening, you have to imagine it's almost like a fairy tale. It's outside of Rome and it's like on top of a mountain. And it looks like someone has just carved the top of a mountaintop into this beautiful town, this cathedral. And
2: it's really magical. It's not easy to get to as well. Like You need to take like a cable car to get there. There's right. not that many cars that can get in.
0: Exactly. It actually feels like you're going on like a a fantasy journey. You have to get in this little cable car,
1: like you say, and it's, yeah, it's really something. And we had uh, cases and cases of this local Orvieto wine. Wow. I must say I'm loyal to my Northwestern Italian wine. (laughs) Can't go wrong with that. I tend to just no pick
2: whatever other people get. I'm. I can distinguish between white wine and red wine, but uh, that's as far as I go. But just by color, <laughs> taste, I have no idea, and it's bad because I'm also supposed to be from a region with lots of wines, so. Yeah, a heathen. So Pietro, why don't you uh,
0: tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? A, a lot of people listening obviously will be familiar with you and, and some of your work. Why don't you tell us a little bit about about who you are and, and what are you doing in Rome?
2: Yeah, the reason why I'm in Rome actually is that myself, together with a few other members of EU and you, are presenting a report on the future of Europe to the French. It's it's not tied to EU and you, but we all went to the same university together and worked on this project and we finally get to go meet, network, and talk to some of the people's actual decision making power, which is gonna be very exciting. Two of our members are actually presenting the report. And yeah, more in general, I'm just I've been working on trying to get you and you registered with the Italian authorities, which has been a mess. And don't tell
0: me that there's some bureaucracy going on. Don't tell me oh, no, oh, Italian bureaucracy, never, I don't never. believe it. No, we don't
2: have that. yeah <laughs> I, think I was rejected three times already for stupid little oh mistakes and so i'm gonna go a fourth time hopefully next week and and that'll be it and so i can come back and work on the podcast work on all the more creative stuff which is much more fun than managing
1: Italian bureaucracy though <laughs> yeah. that sparked that sparked some memories it makes oh, me man. think so. did you ever watch or read the comics of like asterisk
0: uh, the goal oh yeah have you seen the one where he <laughs> yeah. has to go to rome and like, it's called like the
2: 12 trials of asterisks.
0: or aster, I can never say his name. Was wrong. it
2: the 12 trials or something? Hopefully that'll be it. And I can come back and work on all the more creative stuff, which is much more fun than managing. Yeah. But I'm actually really happy to be also the deputy executive director. I'm super happy to, to have this role and be able to dip my feet in a lot of different, let's say, pools of you and you because we do a lot of stuff, and I'm really happy that about all the work we're doing. I'm really excited to see how the podcast comes out, and it seems like you're having a great time communicating, talking about Europe, and I'm really curious to see the end product then because I think a lot of people will enjoy it.
0: Well, thank you, you're too kind. We're we're we're, we're having a yeah. good time anyway. We're having we're having fun. So
1: far, so good. We're having fun,
0: but. Pietro, tell me, what are some of the big ideas in the report that you're going to be presenting next week?
2: What are some of the big ideas in the report we're going to be presenting next week? Actually, can I tell you my favorite point? Please do. Sure. Okay, so we do have lots of proposals. It started off seeing if the EU was actually, there was actually a benefit to it. It's a work that we've been working on with a lot of uh, universities around uh, Europe, including LSE, which is in the UK. And of course, uh, the group of LSE focused on the consequences of Brexit. And that was an interesting part. And then we, and the part I focused on the most since I studied economics was whether the EU membership was actually a benefit to the states that had to go through the financial crisis. And we did find it to be quite a big benefit, even though. For countries like Greece, people say that the European Union ruined Greece. It turned out that if there hadn't been the support of the European Union, it would probably be in much worse shape. And but so we, we talked a little bit about the past, but the main things we did was also offer proposals for the future because that was the assignment. And I think my favorite pr- uh, proposal was one of the institutional committee, which kind of decided to increase the importance of the commission and decrease the one of the council by combining the presidency of the council with the presidency of the commission. So you would have Ursula von der Leyen be both president of the European commission and the European council in this case, which would be Mm -hmm. interesting because in that sense, European councils be all the heads of state of each member state and the head of state of the European Union, which would be the head of the the commission in our eyes. I don't know. I think even just symbolically, it would show a little bit more power to the European Union. And we also checked that it was doable within the treaties that are existing now. And in our opinion, it is. Others might not agree. But I think that's my favorite favorite proposals. And we also have lots of proposals regarding some really big themes like migration, economic policy, rule of law, and, and the environmental transition, which is going to be really important. But yeah, I've worked mainly in the economic one and the institutional one. So yeah, that's what I'm most proud of, let's say.
1: It's really interesting. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to hear. you guys had a proposal that you would, what would you like to change about the EU? Can I ask it back to you guys?
1: That's tough, isn't it? <laughs> Many things need uh, tweaking, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. The first thing that comes to
0: my mind but- is about about fiscal policy. Mm-hmm. That's the first right. thing that comes to my mind. I'm not an expert in economics by any means. Re- recurringly, you can see this issue of this, the kind of... You were looking into the situations in countries like Greece, so you know all about this, but like the, the problems that can arise whenever you have monetary policy and fiscal policy that aren't connected.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also like maybe the tax policies, there has to be a little bit more agreements because it's weird that there's some countries in Europe which are tax saving. I think that's also an interesting point. Or also see Ireland, they've been super successful, but also I think we're going towards that though. I think especially Biden in the US was proposing the global minimum tax, which I think is a step forward. It would have been nice if it had come come out from our tent though.
0: Tax situation is, it's a tough one. Living in Ireland, I've This has been something that's in our news a lot, the double Irish tax
2: mechanism and
0: people using it the same way as they do with Luxembourg. It's uh, it's an interesting one because I'm simultaneously also aware that a lot of investment that we see coming in internationally into Ireland Mm -hmm. relies on favourable tax. It's a complicated problem. Yeah, exactly.
2: It has to be a balance of it because right now apple is an irish company you know
0: yeah
2: yeah <laughs> that's I funny uh, i think that's interesting i, d-
0: I don't actually think that the, the irish government was successful in recovering any of the money that it claimed it was going to try and claw yeah. back from those companies i, I don't think yeah. any of that was actually collected or at least not, not the full amount and it's funny yeah. as well because like even the in the uk the, the specific tax that they tried to introduce to target like big tech companies on the assumption that these tech companies aren't getting taxed in the places where they're doing their business. I read something the other day that like those taxes don't generate any money at all. That's not surprising to be
2: honest. (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's lots of proposal and it's really cool that uh, at least as a group, we always come up with ideas. It would be really nice to eventually maybe hear some proposals from listeners or things like that. I'm not sure if we can work that out, but that would be really cool.
1: I'm sure. I'm I'm sure we can. Let us know
0: in the comments. What are your ideas? Send us a letter. If you have some big ideas, uh, we'll get you on the show. You can tell everybody about them.
2: You can pitch it to everyone. Like, it's like
0: it a startup, but for policy. Yeah. The other obviously big thing that's happening at the minute,
2: COP26.
1: Yes. Yeah. There's a bunch to unpack there, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah, I'm there, there is. <laughs> I'm quite
2: disappointed. Honestly, I'm quite disappointed. What Wasn't it always going to be a disappointment? Yeah, but even just even before the the conference started, I was just looking at the sponsors list and like the amounts of greenwashing in there. It, it's crazy because it's practically steered by all the big fossil fuel companies. I think. <laughs> Did you see all the advertisements, all the stands of these huge polluters about how they're investing in green energy? Oh,
0: I've I've seen a lot of TV commercials recently like that. It's, it's very cynical. Isn't it similar to the tobacco
2: ads we used to
0: see? I think so. <laughs> I, I I think we're seeing something very similar. Everyone else's petrol causes climate change. Yours is toasted. Yeah, exactly. I might have to cut that out in the edit. <laughs> you think so? People will people get Mad Men jokes in twenty twenty one? I feel like that one's uh, pretty popular, but
2: that was for the cigarettes one. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so.
0: Yeah, I was. Yeah, the reason the COP twenty six came to my mind talking about taxes that like it seems like a lot of the proposals. We're hearing about are really hinged around tax and funding. And if if the world starts to take this seriously, we may even find that like these kind of like climate tax things become more important than the way that the the current basis of our tax system at the minute is around wealth creation. What if that were to shift
2: completely? That would be interesting. You mean instead of thinking about wealth, you think about the externalities of where your money goes?
0: I don't think society's ready for any kind of like foundational shift. in in thinking
2: because when was the last time we did a fundamental shift like the last time we did it i think is when we started causing climate change with the industrial revolution yeah pretty
0: much people uh everything still needs to make money that's the problem the it's not even the problem that's just the
1: way the world works everything still needs to make money it's really just i don't think it's as much about money if you think about when humanity switched from horses to cars right There was a big push there, just just as when there was a push for the internet, that's still ongoing, actually. I think people are quite willing to accept new technologies coming into your life, especially if it means a whole set of, of changes, not having to, I don't know, go buy petrol, for example, at a gas station. Not having to spend that money that way. Obviously, it's something that would change your daily life as well. But at the end of the day, it's something that should not come, I think, necessarily from the people from you know everyday citizens but rather from those in power who like we have acknowledged this is an issue right let's fix it it has to be fixed and uh, the time is is what it is so let's make the best of it what i'm optimistic about at the minute is that i think clearly we're 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 at a point where the political
0: will to do these things is aligning with popular feeling. Like I do feel like it's, it's no longer like a fringe issue, right? It is now becoming the thing where if politicians want to be successful, climate change issues are a thing they can actually attach their wagon to. And and I think that's what's going to make actual difference is that it's now a, a mainstream issue. But yeah. I think
2: there's two things that we should take into consideration. One is, especially in my city, at least in Torino, Italy, there's this kind of th- the pollution mindset has been carved into the city in Italy is the city of cars. It was built around the, the Fiat plant that produced all the cars for Italy and was a big center for, for ult, the automobile industry. And hence it has these huge lanes in the middle of the city for cars and it's been engineered to work around cars. It's said that to be also that the owners of the Fiat factory lobbied heavily against even just the creation of an underground subway that only manifested itself in 2008, even though it was supposed to be open for the Olympics in 2006. So I think we also need to keep into account the fact that sometimes there is a whole system that really does not want you to transition because of how it's it's the way it's always been. And people have started to have always been, I think profiting from the system, but also have been used to this system. And you really need a big push in order to start that change. I'm not sure if we, still have had this big push. But yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And the second point, I think, regarding COP26 that really I don't like to see is these carbon capture initiatives because that just makes it seem like you can just continue business as usual, keep polluting from your factories because you're going to set up a system to capture that pollution, even though it's not effective at all. I think all the carbon captures, plants in the world, capture as much carbon as a couple of cruise lines. So it's really not an answer. And I see it being pushed a lot. And I think even Greta Thunberg was really mad about it, saying how much of greenwashing it is.
1: Yeah,
0: Pietro, I know that you have to run in a few minutes. You have your dinner coming up tonight. I know you said that the good Roman food is the Jewish food, but
2: yeah. I, can't, so I can't
0: visualize.
2: You want to know what it is? Yeah, okay, yeah. so What are you, you going to have? It's very weird because the typical Roman food that everybody knows is cacio pepe, all these kinds of pasta that have pancetta, which is pork. And, uh, and of course, if you go to a Jewish restaurant, you won't find that usually. However, I don't think this is a specifically kosher restaurant. It just does all stuff, including some Jewish delicacies. But the main Jewish delicacy is a type of artichoke, which is called artichoke Judea, uh, I think that's the name. And it's this artichoke that's really good for some reason. I've never had it because I don't like artichokes, but they also do like uh, sea bass, fried sea bass, supli, which is a Roman thing, but they cook them very well, which is like an arancino. I don't know if you ever had it, but yeah. with tomato sauce and it's tinier and it's really good. So you usually go to this place and order either four or five appetizers for the table and you share and then you get like a pasta dish or a or an entree and no it's a good time it's fun it's fun it's not exactly kosher but so that because we have people coming from all over europe that participated in the project that want to try everything so we're gonna have give them the option of both things because people know rome for the carbonara so we couldn't not do that
1: that sounds delicious
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I yet. i'm, I'm looking forward thinking to about it. it i'll send you some pictures yeah please do oh yeah absolutely i'll record them tomorrow then Thank you so much for Amazing. having me. I'm really looking forward to hearing these episodes. Thank you for thank joining. You, yeah, thank you thank very you. much for
0: joining. Have a great night. Have a great dinner. Really thank all you the so best much. of luck to you and the whole team with the
2: presentations tomorrow. Let us know how they go. Fingers crossed. We'll keep, yeah. We'll keep them crossed for you. <laughs> thank you so much, guys. Have a great okay. evening. Bye, Pietro. You too. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Thanks. <laughs> Ciao. There is Pietro. Right. What a guy.
0: I think the Jerusalem artichoke is the English name of what he was talking about there. <laughs>
1: a la judea yeah know, that
0: yeah um it could be a coincidence but the, <laughs> the judea I mean, in there and, makes me think Jerusalem artichoke.
1: wrong <laughs> honestly no i don't want to be wrong now but i <laughs> yeah, need to get him back on the show to find i'm looking at pictures now of artichoke judea judea apparently with, a,
0: with an eye yeah that's surprised me too so it actually maybe might be a coincidence but uh, yeah i was yeah it's not the same thing but uh Jerusalem artichoke is a delicious, delicious thing. Something I find really incredible, Pietro and the team working on the conference there, like, they're university students, right? They're like, these are people in their yeah. early 20s we're talking about. Being in positions where they're presenting their ideas to embassies and to politicians. Yeah. I find that really inspiring. I don't
1: think I had the
0: confidence whenever I was that age to feel like my ideas were
1: worth sharing. Sadly, it's I think that happens because of the mindset, right? You're not entirely if you're only twenty, twenty one, and you're going to uni, you don't know enough about the world to be saying something in merit. Which is which I think is pretty Uh, can i say dumb the Uh, superpower
0: to not knowing how much you don't know yeah there's a point there's a point
1: in your life where you
0: think that you know everything because you just don't realize how much you don't know yet and actually that's a very productive time that's a great that's a great time to get out
1: there and, and, and try things exactly but it's good that it's good to see pietro and everyone else on the team do exactly what the, what goes against the mindset? Exactly, like speaking they're... up and proposing things that could actually be meaningful, and it doesn't matter if if these ideas are coming from a twenty-one year old or from a thirty-year-old or from a fifty-year-old for that for that exactly, matter, yeah, just as yeah. long
0: as exactly, I totally agree. I used to do a lot of work with the European Youth Parliament, and that was the the message I was continually trying to get across to everybody. The, the, particularly, there's sixteen. 20 year olds there who are are like primarily taking part in debating and discussions and stuff and I remember it was always my key thing to try and say to them like the ideas that you're having are valid and useful and have a purpose and just because you don't have the same experience or the same age it doesn't make your idea or your feelings about the way things should be maybe you don't have the knowledge of how to implement stuff that's not as important as if you have a feeling of what how, how things should be or could be because people lose that imagination as they get older. Yeah, that's true. And I always felt like That's that true. Whenever I was like chairing discussions or presiding with those, those conferences, I was always thinking, I'm genuinely interested to hear what these young people have to say about this issue or that issue. Cause I don't know, like, I don't have a solution for any of these things. I'll,
1: I'll pose the question, but like, I genuinely then wanted to hear their discussions cause I didn't know yet. Yeah, no, I, I see that This some people tell you, yeah, you don't know anything, but you're not old enough. That's not how this works, and hopefully Pietro and and everyone else can show exactly that. You can really see a problem with a lot of climate responses from people who know that it won't affect them.
0: I think that's part of yeah. why it's it's, yeah, such, it's, it's exactly. such a young people issue because the younger the the younger you are, the younger you are today, the more concerned
1: you should be about. How how habitable is the earth going to be in 50 years, 100? Exactly. But also, I was reading a really good academic paper on this about how these ideas that contest, not necessarily climate change, but like even along those lines, there are people that think, yeah, this is not true. Either contest it completely, saying, okay, this is not true, or like playing down what's going on, saying, sure, it's happening, but it's natural. It's no biggie. (laughs) Nothing's going to happen. And a lot of these, when you, when you break down the ideology of the people that believe, b- believe that climate change is not a big issue or it's not, a, it's not an issue at all, there's this idea that just because something is in the mainstream, Right? Yes. Or just because something is against your political beliefs. Therefore it's a no-go. Yes. No, I don't want that because of my political beliefs. Uh, I'm thinking about American gun laws, for example. I don't know. Is it a new
0: problem? Is this a, is it a new societal change that people's identity politics has now become attached to their definition of true and false? You know, this wave that we see of people rejecting facts based on things that they would choose to believe. Is that
1: something that has come out of the information era? Is that a new thing? Were people always like this? Not necessarily. I think all these new technologies are doing right now is maybe amplifying. All of this happened before in history. I'm sure a big, the big debates in history, like slavery, for example, abolishing it or keeping it. And then you had people that obviously debated on it based on their own personal gains and interests. Yes. Both parties would ground their own beliefs, like depending on I mean, obviously the perspective, but... At the end of the day, this is something that has always been there. It's right now, I think it's just being amplified and it just shows off more. If you type something onto Google, onto your Google search, it's uh, and you compare even at home, if you haven't done that yet, try comparing with, if you know someone that has slightly, maybe slightly different political views than yours, maybe, I don't know, try, try that and you will see how that, how the Google search will vary. And about climate change as well, if you type climate change, depending on where you are, where you stand on the spectrum, you will see how (laughs) your Google is going to say about about climate change and therefore how that's going to influence possibly right what the discourse in in your own head. It's
0: really a very similar mechanism to people traditionally only ever heard the political ideas, whatever of of the parents, that was a big imprint on them. And then you would view everything through that lens. I yeah. I think if anything I I think I agree that this has always been there. I think if anything what's maybe yeah. frightening is that there's an assumption that the things that people see on Google and Facebook are objective. Like I think people maybe know that they can't necessarily trust their parents' opinions or their friends' opinions, but the 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 written word has a kind of power. As soon as you see something printed, so many people have this mindset of there must be some truth to that. Because otherwise they wouldn't have been allowed to print it. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's maybe always been there. I was thinking about this the other day. Do you think, so the people hundreds of years ago who used to burn witches, yeah. are, witch, are witch burners the same people as the people today who think that vaccines contain 5G nanorobots? Like, <laughs> are those the same people? I think they're the same people.
1: A, <laughs> that might as well be the case, to be honest. That, that, that might be the case this this mistrust in science as well which is unbelievable
0: it, mistrust it, mistrust in science as a concept is so ironic in a way given that science by definition is like the, the study of trustworthiness
1: yeah exactly and one may argue sure science isn't perfect oh, of course it's man made everything man made is is imperfect but if you think coming back to the vaccines, we have trackers on us every day. We have phones, yep. we use computers, we Google stuff. We are constantly being targeted all the time. I'm com- now, by now it's common knowledge. It's happened that you've mentioned, you mentioned your favorite pizza and a couple of days later, a pizza ad pops up on your phone, on your Instagram feed or on your Twitter feed. Yep. <laughs> Most people by now have a phone and nobody really questions it, which is instead something you should probably question more, the technology you use every day rather than a, you know, one-time shot. I just, I just thought of something. Um, so I, I think I'm a little
0: older than you. I remember whenever mobile phones were like a brand new, exciting thing. I'm not that much older than you, but I remember like the pre-smartphone era, like these like old cell phones and stuff. (laughs) And whenever they were new, the whole big thing at the time was, oh, these phones cause cancer. That was the big thing. That was why headsets got invented. Because it was like, oh, you can't hold your phone up to your head because phones cause cancer. Oh, you can't put your phone in your pocket because it'll make you infertile. There were all these, like, all these like really radical claims. And whether they were, I, I think they have been disproven. But like whether they were disproven or not, the fact that they just ebbed away from public consciousness is maybe something to do with the novelty wearing off or maybe people just accepting like choosing like well, I want the phone so I'm not going to worry about if it did have any risks or not like a big part of well, it a big part of what we're seeing at the minute with like vaccine hesitancy and stuff is probably to do with there are millions of people in the world who have never even once considered what is a vaccine how does it work and now all of a sudden they're being true, told that they need to take one there's basically like a separate literacy for each type of information right like, like literacy obviously just means if you can like physically, literally read something. But I think you need a literacy for how to interpret news, how to interpret whenever you see a headline that says scientists claim that X thing causes Y, to a literacy for how you interpret that, how much weight you put on it. And it's the same way as if I'm, you, you and I have a literacy for things like TikTok videos and memes that like older generation people wouldn't write. Like we look at those things and instantly know what level of seriousness to ascribe to it, how to interpret it. We can contextualize yeah. it with other things we've seen. I imagine like being on the internet and not having that ability to do that and seeing memes flying at you, like things that are like on certain levels of irony and stuff, it would just be meaningless and you would take some things far too seriously and you would get angry about things. I think a lot of people live like that, but
1: for news stories and scientific reports and political claims, Perhaps the same people that... A few years before were complaining about phones causing cancer are now on Facebook. Oh yeah, almost <laughs> <Talking> definitely. About... <laughs> Maybe on their phone. <laughs> N- near where I
0: live, someone was really upset about 5G. Like Someone was really upset about 5G and they would like, write Stop 5G uh, on phone booths and walls and they would spray paint it everywhere. And this was like five years ago. This was, and it's just really funny to see how that
1: paranoia has morphed into something else. You mentioned literacy, but it has a lot to do with, yeah, just this, the lack of information, maybe transparency and all of this by, by big institutions, by perhaps the media, which sometimes might turn a narrative kind of where they wanted to go. It's happened before. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and that that has nothing to do with whether a media outlet is, uh, you know, left or right or whatever, politically. But sometimes it just happens. Again, there's humans behind, if you think about it, it's not like some big entity doing whatever yeah. evil thing. But so then the responsibility is perhaps on the governments. We've uh, mentioned before, right, COP26, we've mentioned the switch between horses and cars. We've mentioned the internet, slavery going all the way back, or all of these things. At the end of the day, obviously there was the public consensus, there was like approval. But at the end of the day, it's it's the governments I think that should take care of some things, specific things like education, right? That's a major issue right now. And in order to change people's perspective, you need to double down one on. Making sure that, as a government, your citizens are, number one, good citizens as in they can contribute to society in a good way, but also give them the power of critical thinking, which is all that a person needs. As you say that
0: aloud, I'm thinking, in my cynical way, I'm thinking, is every government in the world going to feel a benefit from giving their citizens the power of critical thought? This is my cynicism kicking in.
1: True. But what about Western governments, where the values are already there?
0: Yeah, I was thinking even of things like (sighs) like taking the UK as an example. The Conservative government of the UK relies on a certain level of acquiescence from the people because the policies are not directly beneficial. For the Conservatives to stay in power in the UK, it relies on them getting majority support for things that benefit the minority, and that's very precarious balance to keep and I think the UK is not alone in having that as I said I I totally agree that it it absolutely should be the responsibility of let's say the government to provide good education and core feature of a good education is that ability of critical thinking as the statistic that I heard recently was that in in the US the average reading level of an adult is equivalent with I don't remember the exact grade but like something like a 15 year old or 14 year old and I looked up what the rate was for the UK and it was even lower like the average reading rate for the UK I exactly yeah I thought it would be higher too I (sighs) looked at the average reading level for the UK and it was something like nine or ten years old it was actually frighteningly low what's frightened me about it was like if that's the state of education for being able to read a novel then people really don't have a lot of hope for being able to interpret information that requires them to challenge
1: it before they process it. And then you see results like Brexit or which it's it was clear from the beginning how the narrative was just it was just out of place. And yet this narrative was pushed su- successfully. It was You could argue how that happened? But it yeah, happened. People were voting for how they wanted things to be
0: and it didn't matter that their basis was wrong. I, I, it's a very. I think if nothing else, it really shows you the the state of education, but also this the, the stagnation of UK society. If it gets to a point where, yeah, you know the the EU has been treated as the boogeyman and, and blamed for every problem in society to To avoid anyone having to actually address those issues properly, it's interesting though because what I was, what I what I also was thinking of saying earlier was that one of the fundamental, and this is connected to what we were saying about you know, how far back things go and the way people think about things, and like young people using their voice and imagination, and and that whole concept. I think one of the key things to learn as a as a critical thinker and as someone who's trying to have an impact actively in their society is. Learning intuitively and actually really feeling it inside that the structures and the systems that you see around you are not to be taken for granted. They were not always there. They will not always be there. They're not in some way timeless or perfect, or they literally are there because years, some years before you, someone made it be like that. And that's entirely, you know, changeable and arbitrary and subjective and it's hard sometimes because we look at there are like government buildings in like magnificent carved stone columned pillared buildings there's like classical 16th century architecture and stuff and that feels so permanent that feels like you couldn't possibly change it or make any alteration to it but like in the scheme of human history like a few hundred years even is it's not that much nothing it's, and it's very possible that the, and I'm saying that having that realization and using it is a, is a beneficial thing. And so maybe that's what the, maybe that's what the leave voting Brexit voters were feeling. And maybe they were feeling like this is the opportunity for a, a seismic shift. I think it's just unfortunate that they were given the wrong target to point at. You
1: know, think if you're
0: only fed incorrect information, then you can only come up with incorrect decisions, right?
1: I will leave this question to you, perhaps for uh, another episode. Do you think there's a chance that the UK will rejoin the EU? I that's, think a question a for, discussion that's a to, question to, for another episode. I think that's... Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you can let us know in the comments. <laughs> that's a question for a whole episode. Okay, so we'll keep we'll keep that one on ice, and we'll come back to it next time. All I, right. think cap on. I think with that, it's time to say goodnight. Thank you all for listening, we hope you enjoyed. Check out eu and you on Instagram and on our website. Uh, for more content about Europe and culture and politics, uh, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Have a great evening, people. All right.